0: Magazines that are all about wedding planning. I mean, just thick, honking magazines and expensive, like 7 and $8 for a magazine, just to look at wedding dresses that are in the thousands of dollars, and cakes and venues and photographers that cost, yeah, I, I mean, you're clicking, you're taking pictures, really? Like hundreds and thousands of dollars for photographers and all this stuff. I and mean, there's so much effort and energy and intentionality that goes into planning an event, and there's almost zero effort and intentionality that goes into preparing yourself for a lifetime of being married to your spouse. And so we we, we have to shift that in the church, right? We've got to lead the charge. We've got to be a people that says, wow, okay, here's some college students. And by the way, just this week, I met with another pastor in Stanwood that says, let's team together to start a young adult ministry regionally. Let's work together to draw these kids because... We don't know what to do with our graduated high school seniors who want to hang around the youth group. It's like, go away. But where do we send them, right? So let's do this. So there's another thing God's doing, right, in our midst. And as they gather, we've got to be able to say to them, let us help you prepare for marriage. Because most of you will get married, right? So let us help you go beyond the preparation for the event and the day into preparation for the rest of your lives. during all my years of college and young adult ministry, I've had ample opportunity to sit in meetings with individuals that are part of our ministry, actively involved in the church, actively involved in some, some form of uh, a group of people that's following after Jesus, and hear that individual, hear him or her uh, confess uh, to, to being um, active uh, sexually before marriage and, and, um, or, or they come to me and say we want basically some form of um, you to ordain and bless our cohabitation uh, and it's just crazy to me how many times this happened to me as a pastor in 18 years and I, and I ask myself the question why is it so common uh, it wasn't nearly as common in the southeast as it is since I've been in the northwest to have people come and say man uh, we just want to make sure it's okay with you as a pastor that we're living together before we get married, and that we're engaged in, in, uh, in an activity together with one another before we're married, and I just scratch my head and go, why would you come and ask me to, to sign off on that? That's crazy. And, and so many people in our culture are rushing to cohabitation and rushing into premarital sex as opposed to waiting for marriage, and, and one of the things that strikes me, and some of you guys that are native to the Northwest may not see the distinction, but it's there, is In the south, in the Bible Belt in particular, which is not perfect, in fact, it's one of the hardest mission fields in the world today, because there are hundreds and thousands of people who think that they're Christians because they show up on Sunday. Crazy, right? And, then, and But there's a moral, there's an ethos there that's rooted in the gospel presence. The gospel permeated that culture for a couple hundred years, and so there's still a sense of some of the ethic and some of the right and wrongness of these issues, right? And so You know, colleges will still do them, will still engage in this, but they'll hide it because they don't want people to know, right? Because it's still seen as not okay. But in the Northwest, a place where the gospel has never had that depth of impact over hundreds of years to create the social expectation that those things are not okay, it's just not seen as a problem, right? It's just like, well, what's the big deal? And so there's no moral ethos here that says this is wrong, this is right. This is healthy, this is unhealthy. And so even in the church, when people come to come to know Christ, or genuinely say There's a process of instilling these values. There's a process of educating people as to what God's Word says and, and how we need to approach these things, even as Christ followers. And so Jen and I have enjoyed not just teaching and, and doing premarital counseling and teaching series like this, but modeling for people in our lives what that looks like, most of the time well, sometimes not well. Um, but even in the not well, we, we always make up. We told our kids, you're going to see mom and dad fight, but you, we know you see it. We know you hear it. So we're going to make sure that you also see and hear us make up and, and reconcile so that you don't feel like that's still out there, the brokenness is still there, right? So we always get around to the kids if we had a fight and say, right, we've made up. And we, we do that in front of them and invite them into the room and say, we love each other. Mom and dad are okay. We've gotten through whatever the issue was so that they know that we're past it. We're moving on, Right. And the other funny thing we do—we we just this came about by chance—is uh, we, we will just say to each other, "I really like you," right? And you go, "That's weird." And we, we, had, you know, college students say, "Well, why, why, why would you say you like each other? Don't you mean I love you?" And we laugh and we say, "Well, we always love each other because love is a decision of the will to sacrifice for the good of the other person. We always love each other. That's a foregone conclusion. We don't always like each other." But when we do like each other, we want to be sure to tell the other person that we really like them right now. Because that's not always the case, right? And so you'll hear us, if you hang around your house, you hear me say, yeah, I really like you today. And she'll go, oh, that's great. And then she won't say it back. I'm like, dang, you're supposed to reciprocate with the I like you too. She doesn't always like me. So, um, so, so learn to like, right? You're going to love your spouse. That's, that's the call of Jesus to married people is to always love but uh, learn to like each other. And, and the other thing, Jen and I agreed that no matter what happened before we got married, we, we just made a rule. We said we will never talk about divorce. We'll never say it to each other. We're not even going to joke about it in our house because it's not something that we're ever going to entertain. So why joke about it? Why let it be a thing? Because it's never, ever going to happen. We don't, we don't even talk about it. So, so uh, it, you know, we, we begin to accept the things that we laugh at. Right? You want to know how the culture shifted number one vehicle for that sitcoms the culture shifted because we we accept the things we laugh at well we laugh at today, we embrace tomorrow right so we, we don't even laugh about that issue in our house, but you know marriage doesn't have to end in divorce to be miserable. There are a lot of people who are consigned to what I call mutual misery it's like well, we've got to stay married but well, we're just going to, we're just going to dislike each other for the next thirty years till one of us dies and and that only, I think census data says only 10 to 13% of Americans surveyed are happily married. I think that's just incredibly sad. It's just incredibly sad. So let's talk about marriage. Let's talk about its importance and God's design and His intention for that union. And so what we're going to do is we're going to compare and contrast three things here. We're going to talk about contracts, commitments, and covenants. Okay, Because our culture sees marriage as a contract, or sometimes a commitment, So let me define those words for us, okay? contract is this. A contract is an agreement between two or more parties, especially one that is written out and it's enforceable by law. So it deals with man's laws, right? When we write a contract, we just hired, as a church, a CPA to do our bookkeeping because I can't do it because we'd be bankrupt in like, I don't know, six minutes. Okay, so we we contracted with the CPA to do eight hours a month for us of bookkeeping. So we have a legally binding agreement, and um, she can't embezzle money, and, and, and I can't embezzle money, and, and I can't, so there's so all this stuff in the contract, right, It's legally binding for us. A commitment is the state of being bound emotionally or intellectually to either a course of action, I'm committed to do this thing, or to another person or persons, I'm committed to that person, right? So I'm intellectually bound, I'm emotionally tied to this either thing I've got to do or to this person that I care about. So contract, commitment, and then here's, here's our definition of covenant. Covenant is a spiritually binding relationship that always has its root in God. That's a different thing. Right? So marriage really in some ways is, is, a, is a weaving together of those three things, but primarily it's founded in this idea of covenant. Because a contract, when you sign a contract, you're signing it in whose name? You can't sign somebody else's name, you're signing your name, right? And so says we sign on the bottom line. That's a contract. That's my name. A covenant, on the other hand, whether it's made between two individuals or between a person and God, it's sealed with the making of a vow or the taking of an oath in God's name. Not my name, in God's name. And that's why when a person takes a vow or an oath, even in today's society, it's ended with the phrase, so help me who? God, God right? So help me God. I vow to love you till death do us part, for richer, or for poor, and sickness and in health, till, uh, so help me, God. You go to the courtroom, in some places today, you still put your hand on the Bible, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me, God. You're making covenant. You're entering into covenant with God, right? Because it's in His name. So a contract, then, is legally binding according to man's law, whereas a covenant is legally binding according to God's law. And that's a very different thing. So covenant has eternal connotations. A covenant ends when one or both parties die. That's covenant. So when, when you say, I want out of my marriage. Well, take out a big life insurance policy. No, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. It's when one or both parties stop breathing, that covenant is over, right? Until that happens... Those two parties are inextricably linked together. Um, I I have, uh, with the people that I officiate their weddings, I have moved away from the unity candle, uh, mostly because I've seen it go bad too many times, right? And we've moved towards what we call the salt covenant, which I love, because it's a really cool picture of what covenant is. And so you have a big vase or a vial, a glass thing with some salt or sand in it, and then you have two other ones that are smaller that are filled with salt or sand and um, at the at the covenant uh, the two people getting married pour all of their salt into the bigger one which represents God and then and so what you're saying and this goes back to ancient times in the Middle East so salt is incredibly valuable because it's the only preservative that they had right in a, in a dry arid climate and so you're pouring all your salt in and what you're saying is if I can ever take out all my grains of salt and and put them back in my vial, then we can break covenant. And that's not possible, right? So you're entering into this relationship that's covenant for the rest of your life. And I love that picture because it's wound with God in the same way that Ecclesiastes says a a cord of three strands cannot be easily broken, right? And so covenant winds these two lives in, intertwined with the God of the universe, whereas a contract, man, it's just an exchange of property, in the form of goods and services. It's that's mine. This is yours. And, and that, that's, what, that's what premarital, pre, prenuptial agreements are. Right? Um, just want to make sure we know going into this thing. Because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it might end badly. That stuff's mine. That stuff's yours. So when this falls apart, don't, don't be coming for my stuff. That's contract. Covenant is uh, not a that's mine and this is yours. It's a I am yours and you are mine. It's the language of the song of songs. Right? I'm a, my, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. It's, a, it's an interchange of persons, not an interchange of goods and services. That's covenant, right? That's covenant. Let's, let, let's talk a little bit more about covenant. If you have your Bible, turn to Genesis 15. It's a beautiful picture of what covenant is. And we're going to read the text together, and then uh, I'll go back and unpack it for you just briefly. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, Abram hasn't become Abraham yet. It's really cool, because Abraham, the difference is one Hebrew letter, it's the ha, and it it also represents the breath or spirit of God. So when Abram becomes Abraham, God is literally breathing life into him. He's inserting his spirit into Abram. Um, So he, he says, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Right? God, you promised offspring. You promised children. And so God God says, um, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer, he's not going to be your heir, but your very own son will be your heir. Now, at this point, he doesn't have a kid. And so God brought him outside and said, Look up, look towards the heavens, and count the stars. Number them if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he said, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Oh, Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said, Here's what what I want you to do. Okay? Weird thing. You ready, Abram? Write it down. Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And so he brought all of these, and he cut them in half. And he laid them, each half over against the other, But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This is weird. We'll, We'll come back to this, okay? Let's keep going. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not their own, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day the Lord made covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephram, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Practice that one in front of the mirror earlier. Note the blood path. This is what this is called. It's called a blood path. This, is, this happens even today in some places in the Middle East. Right? And, and, and so... This is The significance of what's happening here is that you take these animals and you find a recessed area where there's a path between two slopes. And as they cut these animals in half, they lay the carcasses there and you can, so the blood runs down, gravity has its effect, and the blood pools in this area where the path is. And so these two parties that are entering into covenant, they both walk the blood path. This is, this is what you do. You walk the path and it gets all over your sandals and your feet and the hem of your garment. And as you're walking the path, what those parties are saying to each other, symbolically, as they walk a blood path and cut, this is literally called Brit Hadasha. this is the cutting of covenant, right? As they cut covenant together, both parties are saying, may it be unto me as unto these animals, if any descendant of mine should ever break covenant with you. That's a big deal. Not just me, my lifetime, but may it be done unto me and my descendants forever if we ever break covenant this is a pretty vivid picture. If you're the one walking the blood path, you're going, wow, I'm inviting my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren to be cut in half if I ever break this covenant. That's, that's, that's more than a contract, right? When you read the text, it's interesting because Abram never walks the blood path. In fact, when you read the text, you get into the Hebrew a little bit, you see that fire pot and that torch <laughs> that are going through, that's a sensor, right? You're, been in a Catholic church or a Greek Orthodox church and you have the, uh, the chain with the, the incense coming out, right? So God is walking the blood path and Abram is not. And so here's, here's what's important to take away from that, okay? This is what God is saying in effect. If, if I ever fail, Abram, to keep covenant with you and your descendants forever, may it be done unto me as it's been done unto these animals. If I ever break covenant, I'll pay in my blood. And then by walking it again for Abram, God is saying, and if you or your descendants forever ever break covenant with me, I'll pay you my blood. He walked it for both of them. It's a unilateral covenant. Because God knows Abram and his descendants are going to break covenant. They can't keep it perfect. But God's already made provision here in Genesis 15. right? He knows Jesus is going to the cross. He's going to paint his blood. I love this picture. I love this picture. So from the perspective of the individual entering into a covenant it's not conditional on the other person to keep the promise. If you're entering into covenant, it's not, well, I'm good with this arrangement just as long as you're keeping your end of the bargain, right? It's not what it is. It's a, I'm going to keep my end of the bargain regardless. I'm entering into this fully knowing that you may not keep covenant, but that I'm going to keep covenant. I'm going to strive for that. And so when you enter into a marriage covenant, you're promising to love the other person even when they fail to do the same. And so when, when God, like, go back in the Old Testament, go through the covenants. When God made covenant with the Jews, he always kept his promises regardless of their actions. Have you ever noticed? Like, he didn't say, okay, well, you guys, you messed the deal up, so I'm out. See ya. Never in the text. You see that. In a contract, is conditional, right? On both parties keeping their end of the bargain up. but that's not what covenant is. God's covenants were and are predicated on his character, not on his people's ability to obey. Always predicated on him and his character. So from the perspective of the individual entering into a covenant, right, you're entering in with the mindset, I am going to keep covenant. It doesn't matter what the other person does or doesn't do. This is on me, I take responsibility for this covenant. And, and so that's, that's the reality of marriage, right? So covenant, let's talk about the uniqueness of the Christian ideal of marriage, right? It is beautiful, uh, this discovery in the context of covenant, because what it actually allows is the opposite. If you are here last week, we talked about American dating, how it's dress rehearsal for <laughs> divorce, right? Because we put on a mask, we put our best foot forward, and we actually bathe and we go out and, and we pretend to be somebody that we're not until about six months into the relationship when the mask comes off and they discover who we really are, right? And, and, and Christian marriage does the opposite it, because covenant provides the only environment where you can actually let down your guard and let the other person discover you and you discover them and you both already agreed in advance that you're not going to bail. And so there's freedom. There's freedom. There's freedom. It's, it's um, it's almost. I won't go so far as to say it is almost a reversal of Genesis three in the sense that, right? They were naked and they were ashamed. It's like um, naked and ashamed. Naked is a southern word. It means something different. Naked means you don't have any clothes on. Naked means you don't have any clothes on. And you're up to something, right? So it's a, it's a different right. But they were naked, and they weren't ashamed until sin entered the picture. And in the Christian ideal of marriage, it's almost a return to the garden. Almost a place where you, not with the rest of the human race, but with one other person, you get to know them so intimately. And there's no shame there. There's no fear of reproach or rejection there in the Christian ideal of marriage. And it's it's a good and perfect gift. We'll we'll look at James in just a minute. Think about it this way. Um, We go back to Moses, right? He didn't get to go into the promised land. Why did Moses not get into the promised land? Struck the rock. Okay, so think, what's the big deal about the rock? Okay, the first time God said Moses, strike the rock. And the second time the people were crying for water, God said, Moses, speak to the rock. And he didn't. In his anger and his frustration and impatience, he struck it a second time. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the rock that followed them in the desert was Jesus. This was a picture God was giving the world of what Jesus was like in the first and second coming. In the first coming, he would be struck. Just like the rock was struck. And from him would pour living water. We would have salvation because of Jesus being struck. Just as the rock was struck. And then speak to the rock speaks to Jesus' second coming. And the words of his mouth accomplish all that God... Right? You read Revelation. Every time Jesus speaks, things happen. Right? It's just speak to the rock. You don't have to hit it. That's already been done. We don't, we don't do that twice. Because Jesus only goes to the cross one time. And Moses ruined the picture that God was giving. And because of that, it was such a big deal to God because pictures are so important. He said, You don't I'm not rejecting you, but you don't get to go to the promised land. Sorry. So take take that reality into into Ephesians 5. Listen to what Paul says. Listen to what Paul says. Ephesians 5, 31, 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh and this mystery is a profound thing, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So here's the deal, here's the reality. God has given marriage as a picture to a watching world of what the relationship of Jesus and the church should be like. And when we ruin the picture, it's a big deal to God. You, I'm not saying you lose your salvation, I'm not saying anything crazy like that, right? But just understand it's a big deal to God. My friend Vic Doss says this, he says, when Jesus gives up and walks away from the church, you have permission to walk away from your marriage. Okay, fair enough, right? So we see that God designed marriage to be a permanent arrangement in this life, not the next life, in this life. Uh, we, we, can talk, we can talk about our Mormon friends later if you want. Um, Till death do us part. And let me just give you, as we, as we move towards closure tonight, six things that I think are hallmarks of a godly marriage, a God-honoring marriage. And so here's number one, okay? God-honoring marriages are built on the foundation of Christ Jesus. God-honoring marriages are built on the foundation of Christ Jesus. Proverbs 3.13 says, Happy is the person who finds wisdom and gains understanding. Okay? And then 1 Corinthians to 14 says this, We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So, One of the reasons the Spirit was given to us is to help illumine our understanding, to help us understand. And we impart this in words, not words taught by human wisdom, but words taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In other words, well, well, I'll just finish it because he'll he'll say this. The natural person, the carnal person, the person who doesn't have Jesus, cannot understand or accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because it's only by the Spirit of God that they're discerned so happy is the person who finds wisdom and gains understanding, and then Paul would say "For Corinthians, the only way to get understanding is by the Spirit of God, right? Say, so I want to understand my spouse. I don't understand my wife. 17 years of marriage, 17 and a half years, and I'm like, there are days when I don't understand my wife. And if you've been married longer and you've got a 100% track record this year, talk to me. I'd love to glean some wisdom. There are days I don't understand it. But... If I'm going to gain understanding and I, and I seek to and I desire to, the only way is to go to God, is to rely on the Spirit and say, Lord, please help me understand this other person because I don't even understand my own heart all the time. I don't even understand my own motives all the time. Would you give me understanding? Hebrews tells us we're supposed to consider one another, how we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And that the wording of the Greek, we translate consider one another, means to study intently. To figure out what makes a person tick. Your spouse ought to be uh, an object of your intent. Study. You ought, to, you ought to take some time to try to watch and observe and figure out what they like, what they don't like. I, I've asked Jen to make, said, write some stuff down for me. What do you like? What, what refills your emotional gas tank? So that I know, well, okay, we need to go for a hike. We need to get out and get some coffee together. We need to go do this, right? I need to know. I need to know. Help me know. Help me understand. We need to study each other. Find out what pushes our buttons, not for bad, for good. I have the spiritual gift of discovering the bad buttons really quickly. Right? Ask everybody that is in my life. They will tell you, yes, yeah, Sadie you can find your button, the bad button, really fast. Finding the good button, the button you push to, to bring about good in a person, that's much harder. But that's the call, right? That kind of wisdom and knowledge and insight only comes by the Spirit, right? So, God-honoring marriages built on the foundation of Christ Jesus. Here's number two. God-honoring marriages are grounded in humility. Humility. It was, uh, oh, it was 2000, because it was the year Noah was born. I'd only been married to Jen five or six months. She was, she was pregnant with Noah. And we got asked to, to do a Disciple Now weekend at our church, which is a big church of about 5,000 people. And we were leading the high school kids. And I had a house with a bunch of high school senior guys. She had a house with a bunch of high school senior girls. And we had this great weekend. It was focused on worship and our breakouts in the home. And every night, we'd have this big worship service they brought in. I don't, I don't even know what band it was, but they were amazing worship leaders and it was so good and so rich. And Sunday morning, we're back in our, in our home church with our kids and we're all there around our, our students and, uh, and, the, and the worship was, I felt like it was dry. It was, it was different. And it wasn't the same and and I did what any uh, really super wise 25-year-old person who knows everything about everything would do. And I wrote a letter to my pastor, right? Because I knew everything, right? And I was just, and it was scathing, and it was careless, and it was sh- shooting from the hip. And, um, and, and, and I detailed how fake things were, and there's no authenticity in our church's worship. And Dr. John Avant, who I am grateful for till this day, He was gracious to me when normally he doesn't even take the time to respond to unfounded complaints like mine. And in his letter of response to me, he simply, I was surprised. I got a letter and I opened the letter and said, Mike, I'd love to schedule some time with you to talk about this. But before we do that, would you read this one verse of scripture? And when you think you understand why I've asked you to read it, call my secretary and we'll set it up. Here's the verse. Proverbs 18, 2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. I was livid. Through the roof. You ever have those moments where you're just in the flesh, you're furious, but in the spirit, you know that you've just been, you've been shot down? And it only makes you more angry because you know you were wrong and you know that the other person's right and you can't you just don't want to live with that? It was one of those moments for me. And God began to work in my heart and say, yeah, you're were, you were you an idiot. And and, and so, um, learn to ask questions. Right, be humble with your spouse. If we're going to make it our habit to approach people thinking that we already know their hearts' motives, we're doomed to fail at relationships. Because Scripture says in Jeremiah seventeen, we don't even know our own hearts' motives. So, so if you're in a fight, you say, "Well, you, you did this because this and that, because this and because you want this thing," you've already set yourself up for failure in relating to your spouse, because you're claiming to know things that you cannot possibly know. Right? So we approach each other in humility. God-honoring marriages are grounded in humility. Here's number three. God-honoring marriages are messy. They're messy. And as such, require realistic expectations. Maybe you should ask yourself some questions. What are some expectations you have of your marriage right now? What are some expectations you have of your spouse if you're not married right now, your future spouse? Think about that. Single folks, think about what it is you want from your future spouse. Young, young people in the room, don't think about it too much yet. Okay, You've got time. I'm talking to my 10-year-old. Especially. Don't even want to talk about it. Until you're through. What, what, are, <laughs> what are some of your expectations about marriage? Right? Expectations reflect needs. And sometimes those needs are only perceived by the individual. Other times, uh, their legitimate needs. Sometimes we can't articulate what we need. Sometimes we don't know what we need until we're not getting it. I mean, it's a tricky thing, right? It's this tricky thing. It's messy. right? So um, Proverbs 14.4, I love this verse. Listen to this. You, you hear me say this, you go, what in the world does that have to do with marriage? Proverbs 14.4, one of my favorite Proverbs says, where there are no oxen, manger's clean, but abundant crops only come by the strength of the ox. That is to say, You can have a clean marriage or you can have an abundant marriage. But an abundant marriage is a messy marriage. You can't have crops and not have dirty stables because ox do stuff. Right? It's going to be messy. Life is messy. That's just the reality. I love that problem. You can have a clean stall, you can have a harvest, but you can't have it both ways. God-honoring marriages are messy and they require realistic expectations. Here's number four. God-honoring marriages are filled with grace. They're grace Proverbs 19, 11, A man's wisdom gives him patience, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It is your glory in Christ Jesus to overlook an offense. It's only taken me 17 years, right, of being married, to really grapple with this proverb. I don't have to be offended by everything my wife does that I don't like. And I don't have to give voice to everything I'm offended by. It would save us a lot of frustration in our relationship if I just overlooked some offenses. Now, there are some that you you can't and you need to deal with for the sake of the health of your marriage. Learning which are which, that's a very important skill set. If you haven't learned it yet, ask for wisdom, right? Ask the Lord to help you. (coughs) Man, numerous New Testament admonitions to bear with one another, um, living up to what we've attained from the Lord our relationships founded in Christ grounded in humility approached with realistic attitudes grace ought to then flow freely from us right and so when you think about this uh, the things that your spouse your kids your parents your friends could address just in your life if they really wanted to they're offended by everything that you did or weren't great at and I'm just praising God right for all of the grace that works to me through others who overlook my offenses that gives me grace for other people Start thinking that way, right? I love, uh, I love this quote of my friend John Smith. He's a pastor in Kentucky. He says this. When our spouse asks for forgiveness for the wrong they've done, we are always to give it. It's very important to use the words, I forgive you. Never say, oh, no big deal, or don't worry about it. Sin is always a big deal, and it needs to be dealt with properly. But Once you say the words, listen to this. Once you say the words, I forgive you, that is the end of the matter. Closure has come, and now you can move forward in life together with no division. It's really that simple. Choose to say, I forgive you. If it's a sin issue, deal with it, and then move forward together. Don't don't let it carry on any longer than it needs to go. So here's five, and we get six, we'll be done. God-honoring marriages require self-control. Proverbs 16.32, He is slow to anger, is better than the mighty, and the one who can control the spirit, who rules over a spirit, is, is greater than he who can capture a city. Wow. I mean, think about that. And Galatians 5 tells us that self-control is one of the fruit of the spirit that manifests in our life as believers. J- James would say it this way, James 1.19 and 20. James says, know this, my beloved brothers, every person ought to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Now for a while, my wife was fond of quoting that verse to me when I was angry. I don't know that that's helpful. But it's true. And this comes in the context of James James addressing our attitudes in the midst of trials, right? Could it be that God has allowed certain people in your life to refine your character? Heaven forbid, right? Could it be um, God's allowed different circumstances to manifest in your life to expose things that he wants to work on in you? I'll never forget the time when Ethan was little. How old was it? A year and a half, two years old maybe? We were at that Georgia Aquarium, and we lost Ethan. We were with my in-laws and uh, Jen's extended family. So it was a huge group of us, and we're the only ones with small kids. And I'm uber vigilant about them when we're out in public when they're little. And part of that was being a lifeguard and like watching, you know, like I just expect bad things to happen. And then suddenly we look up, and uh, Ethan's gone. And we didn't know where he was. And I was in... I was in a panic. I felt completely helpless and out of control. And and suddenly, like, I don't know if this is you, if this happens to you, worst-case scenarios start running through my brain. Okay? He's been taken by a a sex trafficking ring, and he's being loaded into the back of a van, put in a sack, and loaded into a van right now, and I'm never going to see my son again. These are the the things that run through my head legitimately, like, I'm I'm freaking out. And and so I'm like, we've got to walk down the Georgia Aquarium right now until we find our kid. And so, all of that fear and panic has to find an outlet. And the way it found an outlet for me was in frustration towards Jane in the moment. So I'm just going to, both barrels aimed right at her, this is your fault. I told you not to let her go. And I wish I could say that uh, I had self-control in that moment and things were good. We actually found Ethan really quickly. He, he had just... He'd been standing, there looking at the the. There's this huge wall, it's like 30 feet tall, and you're looking into an aquarium, and then whale shark swims right past you. And he was there, and then he thought he was with us, and he just wandered off with another family. That, he, and because he's only looking at knees, I mean, he can only see <laughs> kneecaps, right? Because was like, those kneecaps look familiar, <laughs> right? And then he, and then he was going around the corner, and when he realized he wasn't with us, he looked around and he began to panic. And some sweet person picked him up, and about that time, Grandpa was coming around the corner and saw him. He saw Grandpa. And he's like, "Ah, you know." Did the, and, and it was over. It was over in probably forty-five seconds, which felt like an eternity to me. And I only needed forty-five seconds to absolutely ruin my relationship with my wife. God, our marriages require self-control, right? I forsook my relational harmony in that moment. I traded it for a vent for my anger, which came out of my inability to control the situation. Jen had done nothing wrong. She had not been negligent, but I set my sights on her. But if we're going to have healthy, God-honoring marriages, we have to learn self-control by the Spirit of God. We have to. We have to. And here's the last one. God-honoring marriages seek to create stability, both emotional stability and spiritual stability. Epitomized in a Christ-like attitude that seeks the good of others before it seeks the good of self. That's our definition of love, right? So Proverbs 12 would say it this way, verses 2 and 3, the Lord approves of those who are good, but he condemns those who plan wickedness. Wickedness never brings stability. Only the godly have deep roots. I love that. I love that proverb. Only the godly have deep roots. Wickedness never brings stability. My dad, when we lived in Georgia, the last four or five years we were there, we owned a house. And uh, my dad came over right after we bought the house. And in the back of his little red Ford Ranger pickup truck, he had some Leland cypress tree starts. And so dad goes right to the back fence line. He started digging holes. I'm like, Dad, what are you doing? I'm planting Leland cypress trees. Do you know anything about Leland cypress trees, son? No. And I don't remember asking you to come plant them along the fence line. Oh, they're great. They're for privacy. They fill out. You'll never have to see your neighbors again. Oh, thanks, Dad. For <laughs> this is my dad. Right? And so I'm like, okay, tell me about Leland Cypress trees. He said, the only thing you need to know is sleep, creep, leap. I said, all right, that's great. I can remember that. You have to explain it. What do you mean? Sleep, creep, leap. He said, I'm going to plant these, and then for the first year, you're not going to see any change. They're going to look like they're asleep. Everything you see from the ground up is going to stay just like it is. But underneath the surface, in the dirt, the root system is beginning to spread out. He said year two, that's a creeping year. You might see a little bit of growth above the soil, but still, most of what's happening is beneath the surface. Spreading out wide because when the tree goes up, it's going to be big and tall and heavy. And so year three is a leaping year because the root system is in place, you'll see sudden growth. You'll see a lot of change above the soil line as the tree goes up and up and up. So, that makes total sense. Sleep, creep, leap. The same thing is true in our hearts. I see so many people who topple over in one of life's storms only to find that their roots were not very deep. Right? And we have to help each other in the body of Christ put down deep roots Wickedness never brings stability, but only the godly have deep roots. And this brings us full circle, really, in this discussion, because at the core of it all, our roots spring forth from the seed of the gospel, which is planted in the soil of our hearts. So godly marriages have to begin on a foundation of Christ. They have to begin there, where there's no hope for deep roots. So we'll finish with James 1. James says this, I love this. In the midst of trials, James said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So are we talking about marriage? Sometimes, listen. For when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. He's are like, Sadie, your wife's not in the room. You're calling your marriage a trial. Stay with me. Okay, verse 13. Let nobody say when he's tempted, hey, I'm being tempted by God. For God can't be tempted with evil, and he doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. Then that desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So James says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's no, God doesn't change. So get this. What does that have to do with marriage? You single people in the room, man, I can't imagine marriage ever being a trial. And all the married people said, just wait. It can be. It can be hard. You get married, you're a single person, you cannot wait to get married to this person. Because getting married will solve all your single problems. And it does. It just opens up a whole new set of marriage problems you didn't even know existed, right? <laughs> um, so, so now you've, you've, got a whole, you've got a whole new set of married people problems you didn't know about. And, and you can marriage bring trial? And it's like, yeah, you bet, right? Two uh, fallen people bringing their family of origin skill sets and their conflict resolution skill sets and all, everything to one another. That, yeah, oh yeah. Trial, conflict, absolutely, right? And so you go back and you think of James's admonition in the context of marriage. So can I be tempted in my marriage? Uh, Yes. To cheat, to leave, to withdraw from your spouse, right? Which, again, we said dating in our culture, dress rehearsal for divorce. Those thoughts of withdrawing from your spouse or leaving them or cheating on them. Listen, James says that's not God doing that, right? That's your flesh and your own evil desires. And if you give in to those things, the sin that comes about can and will bring death to your marriage. And that's the thing about God's purposes and covenants. See, something always has to die. Right? In the blood path, animals had to die. Uh, In the covenant, the new covenant with us, Jesus had to die. Anytime there's covenant, something dies. So so die to yourself. Learn to do it now. I can't tell you in, in years of men's ministry how many guys I've had say to me, man, my wife just doesn't get it. She complains and nags me all the time. Doesn't she know I would lay down in traffic for her? I would take a bullet for her? And my response in recent years has been, so then do it. Nobody's asking you to take a bullet. Just die to yourself. Die to your preference. Die to having it your way. Right, you talk about wanting, being willing to die for your wife. Kill your flesh now. Okay. When you go back to verse 17 in James chapter 1, it says every good and perfect gift. Man, think back to your wedding day, married people. You're standing there. Guys, you're, you're already at the altar, and here she comes down the aisle. Ladies, the door's open, and you see down the aisle, and you see him standing there. And you think, wow, good and perfect gift. Right? I did. So I thought a bunch of other things too. Good and perfect gift was in the mix. And, and, and then, year in the marriage, two years in the marriage, 15 years in the marriage, you roll over one morning, smell that other person's breath, and go, I'm not sure. Good and perfect gift. <laughs> I don't know. You forgot to take the garbage out again. Oh, good and perfect gift, I'm not so sure struggling with addiction, struggling with impurity, anger issues, not so sure that's a good and perfect gift. Here's the question. Do you see your spouse as a good and perfect gift from God himself? Because you did on that day. It was true on that day of your wedding. It was true then. And James says it's just as true today as it was then. The problem is not that the gift has changed or the giver of the gift has changed. The problem is that we change. Our hearts are fickle. And so... It's easy to lose sight of that, right? It's easy to lose sight of the goodness of God's gift uh, when when we think that our spouse is not really easy to love. They're not easy to get along with. And that's why verse 16 is in the text, right? We can be easily deceived. He says, don't be deceived, brethren, right? Because we can be deceived into not believing the truth about God. We can be deceived into not believing that God's gifts are still God's gifts even when things get hard, okay? We're called to align our thoughts and our emotions with God's truth, as we read his word, whether it's in preparation for marriage or whether it's in the midst of marriage when trials hit us, God's still the giver of good and perfect gifts. My wife is still a good and perfect gift. I'm just not seeing her that way, right? And I've got to go back to God and say, realign my thinking. Bring me into the right perspective. Help me to see this the way you see this. That's going to move us towards Christ-honoring marriages. That's going to give us credibility with a culture who doesn't know the first thing about Christ-honoring marriages because as they see that dynamic in our lives, and our marriages, they're going to go, what is that? I don't, even, I don't even have a category for that. You guys love each other? You like each other? That's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. Let me tell you about the God who makes that possible. And now our marriages are opening the door for the gospel. How beautiful is that? It's awesome. Let's pray together when we we'll be done tonight. Lord Jesus, thank you for mm-hmm. your word. Thank you for this group of people who are uh, loving you, trying to follow you. Uh, I was, was going to say the best of our ability, but that's not good enough. That doesn't cut it. We need your spirit. We need you to fill us afresh tonight with your spirit. We need you to pour out your strength and your courage into our hearts. Not just strength and courage to go into our workplace and into school and into our lives to share the gospel. Courage to love our spouses. Courage to love our families. Courage to engage our families when we'd rather withdraw. Father, we need you. We need you for the sake of our marriages. We need you for the sake of our families. And we trust that as you bring those things online and into alignment with your will and your word and your truth, that we're also going to be given stewardship beyond that to to people in our lives that don't know you who see those things and go, what is that? I don't even understand that. God, would you give us grace to live lives of Christ-likeness with our spouses, with our families, with our children, with our parents, with our siblings, to the honor and glory of your name above all things. We pray these things in the matchless name of our King and Sovereign, Jesus Christ. Amen.